This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello there and welcome to episode 24 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're going back in our archive to April 2015 and we're bringing you a hangout from our theology training stream where we had Rich Tut teaching about the mission of God and the story of the Old Testament. You can find this full hangout, including the Q&A with Rich and the notes on everything that he had to say at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 24. So here's Rich Tut. Built through the Old Testament can be boiled down to three elements. And I'm going to do what they mean in the Old Testament today. And then next time, as you heard, there's going to be unpacked in the New Testament context. And I would say we can sum it up as three things. God is looking to build a people for himself. He's wanting to fill the whole earth with them. And he's wanting them to live under his blessing. And so we're going to see throughout the whole storyline of the Old Testament, we're going to see how God is working through his purposes of gathering people for himself, how they're going to fill the whole world. And we're going to start really small with that, with just two people in a garden. And we're going to see how that God is wanting them to live under his blessing. God's plan from the start has always been that he wants people devoted to him, set apart for him, true to him, reflecting his glory in the whole world, in the whole of creation. And As we go through, we'll see that that story is worked out painfully slowly. It's worked out falteringly throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Thousands of years go by where God is slowly working this process through. And we get to a point where we think, actually, it hasn't even worked. The whole thing's been a disaster. But as we know the end of the story, it then culminates in the New Testament, in the glorious appearing of Jesus and the new covenant and everything that you're going to hear next time. The... Purposes of God, I think, can be likened very clearly to a steamroller in that it just takes a really, really long time to get there. But when it does get here, you can't stand in its way and you can't stop it. And that's what we see. Uh, We are in the steamroller approaching stage where we stand there and through the Old Testament see slowly, slowly, painfully, slowly God's purposes working out. And then the New Testament is the real excitement when, bang, it's here. The other two things that I want us to see as we go through the Old Testament is I want us to see a pair of, uh, if you like, opposite statements that characterize the message that God is bringing through the Old Testament. And so on the one hand, we want to see that one of the main themes of the Old Testament, as we've said, is that God wants people. God wants people for himself. But we're going to see over and over again that balanced on the opposite side with people don't want God. God wants people, but people don't want God. We're also going to see that the Old Testament speaks self-consciously about itself and testifies, if you like, against itself. The Old Covenant saying, this doesn't work. Old Covenant way of relating to God doesn't work. And there's the glorious hope that it's pointing forward, on the other hand, that that will work. So as we go through the whole narrative, watch out for People filling the whole world under the blessing of God. Watch out for God wants people, but people don't want God. And watch out for this doesn't work, old covenant life, 
that will work new covenant life so that's where we're going i'm going to do it as clearly as i can uh and hopefully bring those things out for you i don't know how you do things but i'm happy to ping out notes at the end if that saves people kind of jotting down all sorts of references and things like that i can email them out however that works okay so let's begin i'm going to break the whole story into eight segments that really describe the eight phases and I could have spent lots of time making them alliterate or spell something out, but we're not going to. We're just going to go for what they are. So we're going to start number one in the beginning with Genesis. The first two chapters of the Bible open, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. He creates humanity. And however you want to interpret that process and you think God worked those processes out, we arrive at this situation where God has got people. And really the key, the first key scripture that we need to see to help us understand the mission of God in the Old Testament is Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, where it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So right at the start, we have humanity created in the image of God to represent God to the creation that he's made and to rule the creation that he's made. Right from the start, we see that God's plan is to have his people ruling and reigning in his place in his world. And we see this in the kind of blessing stroke command in verse 28, where God says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And this word that we see, earth, is a translation of a Hebrew. We're only going to do, I think, one or two Hebrew words today, is eretz, which literally means land, or in other places it's translated as earth, because they didn't really distinguish. They're not thinking of a ball in space. They're thinking of the flat stuff that we live in. And he's saying you fill the land, fill the, fill the solid ground. And as we're going to go through, we're going to see that actually God's plans kind of unfold outwards and outwards and outwards. Initially, for a large part of the Old Testament, certainly, God is concerned with a small piece of land, the land of Canaan, uh, reasonably similar to parts of modern day Israel and some of the Middle East today. But as we go forward, we see that God's plan is not just to fill the land, the promised land, with his people, but it's going to spill over to fill the whole world. And this is one of the ways that this word Eretz is kind of useful to us, that it, it, in some cases he's speaking of the land, this part of the land. In other cases, he's speaking of the whole land everywhere. And God's plan to fill the whole world with his people. But we're going to start really small with a small piece of land, the garden in Eden. And what we're going to see is this garden, which is a place to meet God, know him and enjoy his presence, gradually develops over the story of the Old Testament to become a kind of a microcosm of the promised land, the land of Canaan, where God's people are going to live. And as we go further, we see that actually God's plan wasn't just to live in the garden. It wasn't just to live in the land. But God's plan was that the whole world would become the garden. It would spill out and all people everywhere in the world will live under his blessing so that's where we start be fruitful increase in number fill the land fill the rents then we get the four all too familiar to us where people rebel against god and we hit the five big d's and this is where you can alliterate if it works for you we see that despite god giving them complete freedom of the garden fellowship with him with just one constraint not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the people distrust god and think he's holding something from them. They disobey God and refuse to obey his clear instructions. They displace God and take their place at the center of the moral universe. 
they then disconnect with God as sin breaks the fellowship. And ultimately we see Romans 5, for example, talks about through sin comes death, all of which is setting us up for the story that though God wants people, people don't want God. They want to attain God that can meet their needs rather than a sovereign God who they serve. We then see in Genesis chapter 3, God brings the curse. Life becomes hard. The man and the woman are cursed in their spheres of primary influence at the time. But we get this wonderful, wonderful promise in chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent, the devil now. Between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And here's the second Hebrew word that we're going to interact with a little bit. The Hebrew word Zerah, which is translated in the NIV as offspring. A literal translation will be seed. And the reason this word is going to be useful to us, because in the same way that Eretz carries the sense of land, but can also carry the sense of the whole earth, Zerah, seed, offspring, can carry the sense of one individual offspring, or can carry the sense of all your collective offspring. And as we go through the story of the Old Testament, we see that in some cases God is speaking of collective, your offspring. In other places, he's speaking of individual offspring. And at the moment, in Genesis 3.15, we don't really get the clue what's it going to be, except we know the end of the story. That there's going to be someone who's born from a woman without a man's involvement who's going to come and destroy the works of the devil. It goes on in verses 22 to 24, and man and woman are expelled from the garden and from the presence of God and from life itself. So really, right at the start, instead of God's plan, my people fill the earth and live under my blessing, we've got a small amount of people that seems to just to be a couple of, they don't even have the land or the microcosm of the land, the garden, and they're not living under the blessing of God, they're living under the curse. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament story is really answering the question, how do we get back into the garden? How do we get back into the presence of God and the experience of life and blessing that we get from him? Or even more accurately, I suppose, if you take it in the, th- in the sense that people don't want God, how does God get us back into the garden? Because actually we run away from him and he comes looking. And we're going to see that God expands the garden out to the land and to the whole world. However, it appears to go very badly from then on. Genesis 4, 1 to 11, sorry, Genesis chapters 4 up to chapter 11, we see that people continue to reject God. But the whole narrative is of sinful, ungodly, rebellious people who spread out. And in chapter 6, it says they fill the Eretz. They fill the land, these people rebelling against God. This is not what God wants. He wants a people devoted to him, living in the whole world under his blessing. And so he brings the flood to wipe out humanity. And we get the sense that this really doesn't look like the plan is working. God starts again with Noah, who's portrayed as a new Adam, Adam number two, if you like. And God, as Noah exits the ark, makes the same promise stroke blessing to him. In Genesis 9 verse 1, and says to Noah, be full and increase in number and fill the earth. He's going for the same thing again with Noah that he'd gone for with Adam right back at the start. To fill the earth with God's people living under his blessing. But it's still not working. Noah gets drunk and he's found naked in his tent, embarrassing himself. We then fast forward to chapter 11 and we find in Babel, uh, the same Hebrew word translated Babylon later on in the Old Testament, that the people build a city and a tower to make a name for themselves and to avoid being scattered over the face of the earth. So people are resisting God's plans. So when we get to the end of Genesis 1 to 11, just the first 
little bit of the Bible, we've been teed up with this story. God wants people, but they don't want him. And it's not working. This way of relating is not working. So then around about 1800 BC, Abraham enters the scene. And Abraham, or Abraham as he was called then, is a kind of Adam number three. It's almost as if God says, right, let's try again. Let's get another person, another man, who's going to start up a new line of people who can become my people and fill the whole earth living under my blessing. There's a series of encounters with God that Abraham experiences, and God makes covenant promises to Abraham and to his seed, his offspring, Zerah, which again, most of the time they seem to mean plural, but we get little hints that they mean individuals. And to summarize the promises, God promises to Abraham that he will become numerous, that he will inherit the land, and that he will bless all nations. You see the same three things. God's going to grow a people for himself from Abraham. They're going to inherit the land, and they're going to be a blessing to all the nations as people live under the blessing of God. The primary one of these is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, which I will read for us briefly. Let's read it from verse 2. God speaks to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Again, all peoples on Haaretz, on the land, will be blessed through you. Which, which we understand with New Testament eyes spreads out to be the whole world. God then in Genesis 15 reaffirms these promises to Abraham and promises that your offspring, your seed, will be like the stars of the sky uh, and the sand of the seashore, too numerous to count. Genesis 17, again he speaks to them and says, I'll increase you in number, you'll be the father of many nations. And here he says, and I will give you the land of Canaan. And in Genesis 22, reaffirms them again. So what God is looking to do is to fulfill his plan of having a people living in the land under the blessing of God. But he's going to do it through the new line of Abraham, filling the land with his people. And so we see that the promises are then passed on down the line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel. And the promises each time are reaffirmed to you and to your seed, and to your offspring after you. So we're tracking the line. Israel then has 12 sons, which you probably know turn into the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, this is a classic example of the Old Testament hammering home its message. When we look at the 12 sons of Israel, instead of these great patriarchs of respect and love, basically they're really ungodly people. They don't want God in their lives. And it's tearing us up again for, we need something that is going to work because this currently is not working. On his deathbed, Jacob, Israel, blesses each of his sons and prophesies about their offspring and prophesies in Genesis 49, verse 10 of Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So again, we get this kind of almost spine-tingling sense that something's going to happen. One of Judah's descendants is going to come, and it's going to have global implications because the nations will be affected by it. However, things don't really look good by the end of the story, and we find through a famine and the whole Joseph saga, we find Israel and his family taken out of the promised land and living in the land of Egypt, 
And as we end Genesis, which is really a key book for understanding the rest of the Bible, we find that we've got some people, you know, more than a few dozen, living with some blessing, but they're out of the land. So the optimistic amongst us think, oh, we're getting somewhere. Let's move on to the third section we need to look at, which is Exodus. And Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 helps us pick up the link again. Rather than being separate books, we've always got to view the first five books of the Bible, particularly as one volume, the Pentateuch, five volumes, that give us one consistent narrative. So instead of finishing Genesis, let's pick up a different story and see what happens in Exodus. We see that God is still working his Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 purposes out through his people. Exodus 1, verse 6 and 7, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Do you you see how he's deliberately using that that opening line? Not to say there were lots of Israelites, but he's deliberately picking up the same language that he spoke to Abraham about and the same language right back from the start of Genesis to show that God's purposes to have a people living in the land under his blessing are being fulfilled. And now we've got lots of people Slim blessing, they're oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians, and they're in the wrong land. But at least we're heading in the right direction, it seems. God's rescue of the people from Egypt is based on his covenant promises. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, says that Yahweh remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the basis for his rescue. I'm still working out the purposes that I had in mind when I took hold of Abraham and his seed, his offspring. Moses is raised up to lead the people out. We have the burning bush encounter where again Yahweh speaks to Moses and emphasizes Exodus 3 verse 15. I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, I am Yahweh, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Because his purpose is to take a people for himself, to put them in the land, to let them live under his blessing, and to see that spill out to the whole world. Much of the rest of the story of the Exodus hopefully is reasonably familiar to us. We have the showdown between Yahweh and the Egyptian gods culminating in the plague on the firstborn sons in the houses of Israel and the Passover feast where a lamb is symbolically sacrificed to spare the people of Israel. The people come out of Egypt, they're released, they're pursued, the Egyptian army is defeated in the Red Sea. And then they have three months of kind of wandering in the desert, which instead of being characterized by what we should think is, they must love God, they must be delighted in it, is characterized by complaining, moaning, grumbling, backbiting, and rebellion. Again, the author is hammering home to us this point. This is not working. This doesn't work. Old covenant life is not enough for us. After three months, they arrive at Mount Sinai, and the law is given, the Ten Commandments, and much, much more in chapters 19 to 31. And as soon as the law has come, what do we find? Chapter 32, the people are sacrificing to a golden calf. They've made an idol. This can be our God that brought me out, that brought us out of Israel. We see again, the author has deliberately put it here to tell us, law alone does not work. We need something better. Moses is given the instructions to build the tabernacle and explicitly says in Exodus 25 verse 8, God speaks and says, so that I might dwell among them. And the tabernacle really is a a portable garden. 
it's a way of saying, right back at the beginning, we had the Garden of Eden, the place where men and women lived in fellowship with God. Let's have that with us as we travel. Let's have a place where we can go to connect with God. And God wants to dwell in the midst of his people, not on high or far away or on mountains, but right in the midst of his people. However, the Israelites still respond with unbelief and failure. They refuse to trust God and they refuse to enter the promised land and spend 38 years futilely wandering in the desert till the whole generation has died. We then find ourselves on the plains of Moab four decades after the original Exodus with the book of Deuteronomy, which is deliberately written to round off the Pentateuch. That's why it repeats so much of what went before, because it's saying to us, let's go through this again. God made a promise that you will be my covenant people. And here's the law and here's the way I want you to live in the land. And if you live under my covenant in the land, you will live under the blessing of God. And we get all the stuff that prosperity gospel people misunderstand about, you know, you having abundant harvests and flocks and herds and good health and nothing going wrong. Because God's saying, look, I want you to live under my blessing. And this is how I'm going to show you what that might look a bit like under the old covenant. But even then, the message of Deuteronomy ends on a really sour note. Instead of a, hey, let's go in and take that. It ends in chapters 30 and 31, just before Moses dies, with Moses saying to the people, do you know what? You're not going to do it. I know you're not going to live God's way. I know you're going to break the covenant. And ultimately, you're going to be thrown out of the land, just in exactly the same way that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. But there's a time coming where God will circumcise your heart so that you will love him. And Deuteronomy closes, and the Pentateuch closes, telling us this doesn't work. Old covenant isn't. We then come to section four, the conquest, which, to be honest, is an overstated title for what Joshua achieved. Joshua's conquest, in contrast to what is often taught in Sunday school, was not a wonderful kind of invasion of the land and we just wrap it all up and isn't it wonderful? It was an initial offensive that was fairly unsuccessful if we view it in terms of what God actually asked them to do. They were called to go in and take possession of the land, to displace the people in there, and not leave anybody in the land where God was going to grow and bless his, his people. But what we actually find is a series of raids and incursions. Three cities are destroyed, a few others attacked, a few other armies defeated. Joshua bases the people of Israel at Gilgal near the River Jordan, launches an attack in the north, attack in the south, but with very partial success. So at the end of the action half of the book of Joshua, chapter 13, verse 1, it tells us there were still very large areas of land still to be taken. And the rest of the book of Joshua, they don't do anything. There's no more action. All they do is work out who's going to have what when they finally get around to taking it. So it ends on a very sad note that instead of we're in, we've taken the land, we've won the victory, it ends with we've started, but we haven't finished. And this legacy rumbles on into the book of Judges, where we find a very incomplete occupancy. Israel is living in the land, so God's finally got his people into the land, but they're alongside many other peoples instead of expelling them from the land. Frequently, these other people oppress the people of Israel. Frequently, they cause them to stumble and fall and follow after other gods, again, as evidence that people fundamentally don't want God. Instead of a united nation, we find the Israelites living really as a loose federation of tribes in the land. Tr if you read through things like Samuel uh, 
the early parts of 1 Samuel and also Judges, you find that people's tribal identity is far more significant to them at this point than their national identity of Israelites. People identify as Simeonites, Ephraimites, Danites, Gadites, I guess in a similar way that people in um, modern Pakistan or Afghanistan, often their tribal identity is more significant to them than what we would refer to as their national identity. The judges themselves were not fabulous. They were more like local warlords than national rulers. Often their reigns were characterized by a brief deliverance, and then you see them kind of spiraling down into these disappointing, godless ways. You can think of people like Gideon and Samson. And the people of Israel, far from being a shining light to the nations around them, all peoples on earth being blessed through them, we find actually they're ungodly, they fail to live as God's people, they fail to live under the terms of the covenant that God spelled out uh, in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and as a result, they experience very little blessing. And the key line, I guess, to help us understand Judges is Judges 17, verse 6, which says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is not just a statement of fact. There was no king, and by the way, everyone just made up their own morality. What it's doing is the author is telling us we need something more than this. We need a king, a righteous ruler. We need someone who's going to come in and show us and help us live for God, who's going to help us fulfill the terms of the covenant. We need ultimately the Davidic king who's to come. We need Jesus. Samuel, the last of the judges, appoints Saul, the first king of Israel. And the question, and if we've been following the narrative with no mind to what goes on beyond, is, is this going to solve the problem? Is Samuel going to appoint Saul to be the king who causes us to live under the blessing of God as we love God, as he leads us into righteousness? Instead of doing what's right in our own eyes, we do what is right in the eyes of God. Will this bring God's people into God's blessing in the land? Section number five, we move into the United Kingdom which starts around about 1050 BC when Saul's an appointed king. Saul does kind of unite the 12 tribes into one nation, but his own personal disobedience leads to him swiftly being rejected as king and told that he'll be replaced by someone who's a mouth. And so we find that far from the solution, we've now got a king who's going to lead us into righteousness. We don't seem to be much better off. Enter onto the scene King David, one of, well, the greatest king of Israel, the, 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 the ruler from the tribe of Judah, perhaps, that was to come. King David fully cements the nation into one kingdom instead of a loose confederation of tribes. Israel becomes a geographic and political unity under him. Jerusalem becomes the capital, and the nation finally is secure. And if we're following the narrative, we immediately ask the question, are we here? Have we got God's people living under the land under his blessing? And it looks pretty good for a while. David is so well regarded in the Old Testament that he's the standard to which all future kings are compared. He did evil in the eyes of his Lord, unlike his father David, or he did right in the eyes of the Lord, like his father David. And we could ask the question, is this the ultimate ruler from the tribe of Judah? However, as we know, David was far from perfect. Despite his earlier successes, the later decline in his ruler and his kingship and his morality, adultery, murder, overindulgent parenting, 
moral failure and the decline in David's authority sowed the seeds of the later degeneration of the nation and the subsequent division into two halves. But we get this incredible promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, which is a slightly harder version of it than the one we get in 1 Chronicles 17 where God speaks to David. And even though he says, you're not the one to build a temple, to build a house for me, he says this, the Lord himself declares to you that he will build a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring, your seed, Zerah, it's the same concept again as we saw right back in Abraham, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And we love it, and we, we know it's speaking of Jesus, the son of David, to come. But it's this kind of almost confusing curveball. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we have this expectation that even though David looked good, there's someone who's going to be even greater than David who's going to come, who's going to establish an eternal kingdom. And we wonder and concern ourselves sometimes about the punishment and the floggings. But that's a question that we can dig into later if necessary. Solomon, David's son, is appointed king after him. And Solomon could have been brilliant. He was gifted, wise, godly, a strong leader, internationally influential. He inherited a stable, united, secure kingdom. And really Israel experienced a golden age of peace and prosperity living under Solomon. The temple is built. Jerusalem is strengthened and expanded. The borders reach really the full limits almost that God promised to Abraham and the kingdom becomes rich. And in 1 Kings 4 verse 20, we get this testimony. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as sand on a seashore. And it rings in our hearts. We think this is what God's been promising. He's doing it, particularly when we go on the next verse and we read the boundaries of the land and we realize it's the land promised. This is it. This is the people living in the land under the blessing of God. Is Solomon the promised son, the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham? Is this the eternal kingdom? No, because again, people don't want God. Solomon's fatal compromises, backsliding, idolatry and sin, produce ultimately a selfish king and a sinful nation instead of all people on earth being blessed through them. And so we become, chapter 6, the divided kingdom. This is around 930 BC. Solomon dies, leaving what should have been an incredible legacy to build upon. Let's go out from here and be a light to the Gentiles and bless the whole world, all nations of the earth. But instead, Solomon's sin and hard-heartedness towards God has infected his son. Rehoboam becomes the king, but provokes the split of the nation with his crass and heavy-handed handling uh, of the people. They come to him and say, we need a break. This has been so hard under Solomon. We've achieved a lot, but we need a break. Thanks to some wise advice from his mates rather than the old counsellors, he says to them, listen, my father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. You think it was tough under Solomon? I'm even tougher. And as a result, 
Jeroboam rebels with the ten northern tribes and creates a separate kingdom in the north. This kingdom, from here on in, is usually referred to as Israel, sometimes referred to by its capital city, Samaria, or one of the dominant tribes, Ephraim. The kings of the northern kingdom of Israel are not of the Davidic line. They're not the heirs to the promises to, to Judah, to David. Often they have short reigns. They're ungodly. There are murders. There are coups. It's unstable. There is an alternative religious life going on in the north with golden calves created an alternative cultic centers for people to worship. People don't want God. They want to tame God that they can do what they want, and he's still on their side. The kingdom of Judah in the south fares a little bit better, but not much. It's really just Judah and they are ruled by Davidic kings, sons of David. Each one, the expectation will be, is this David's son that was promised? Is this the one whose kingdom is going to last forever? And as we go through the story, it's a depressing mix of good and bad kings, a little up, a little. They're always compared to David, the ultimate king so far. And yet the chilling thing is that of this split, in 1 Kings 12, the Lord says, this is my doing. God's people and his land are now split in two. They're largely unfaithful to him, and there is very slim blessing. From here on in, there's two or three hundred years really of slow decline. People evidencing that they don't want the real God in their midst, in their midst. It's punctuated by small revivals under people like Josiah, uh, Elijah. The prophets speak into the situation again and again, warning of coming judgment and exile from the land if the people don't change their course. This will be in line with things like Exodus 18, 28, sorry, Leviticus 18, 28 and Leviticus 20, 22, which say, if you don't live by the covenant and you defile the land, it will vomit you out. And so just as God has said to Adam and Eve, you need to live in the garden and obey me, and you can live here and experience my blessings. He says to the people of Israel, you need to live in the land, the place I've given for you. You need to live here under my covenant with me at the center of your life. Otherwise, like they were expelled from the garden, you'll be. And sadly, the people don't keep the covenant, don't experience the blessing and forfeit the land. Section. Israel and Judah fell to live as God. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, was finally destroyed in 722 BC when they rebelled against the Assyrian Empire, which had gained dominance in that part of the world. They had been attacked and punished on several occasions, and finally the patience of the Assyrians ran out and the city was destroyed. Huge amounts of the population were taken off to Assyria, as was the policy at the time of that empire, and new people were brought into the land, and they mixed with the people who were already there, resulting in the Samaritans that we find in the New Testament. This kind of half people, are they God's people or are they not? They're a mixture. Certainly they weren't living in any kind of way in obedience to the covenant that God had spoken. And we hear very little more about them. The kingdom of Judah lasted about 140 years longer, but in the end was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Eventually, they came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city walls, and exiled the people. And again, we find only the very poorest people left in the land just to tend the vineyards, to keep things ticking over, and external governors were appointed over them. Estimates are that there are perhaps only 10% of the population 
uh, of Judah compared to under the time of Solomon uh, and subsequent kings. And what do we find ourselves in this situation? We find ourselves exactly back to where we've started. Because where have they been exiled to? Babylon. Exactly the same word in Hebrew, Babel, as is translated Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So we've gone from God saying, here are these people having a city in Babylon, in Babel. I want to spread them out to fill the whole earth with my people living under my blessing. And it seems like the project has totally gone belly up because all God's people seem to be a few of them living in the land, but most of them right back where they started in Babylon, not living under the blessing of God and certainly not in the land, enjoying the favor of God and shedding it to all the people. Which is why the exile years were a time of crisis for the Israelite people. For about 70 years, they were in Babylon, in exile. It could have been the end of them. Many other people groups were snuffed out of existence during the Assyrian and the Babylonian exiles. It was humiliating. God's people, who had got used to thinking of themselves as God, Yahweh, here's our God and we are his people, now found themselves slaves in a foreign land. It's Egypt all over again. There's a lot of us, but we're enslaved. We have no land and we've got no blessing. It feels like we've got nowhere. This was the same area of the world that Abraham started out from. And yet we're back here again. And of course, there's a theological crisis. Does the covenant still exist? We've got no land. We've got no temple. We can't provide the sacrifices. We don't seem to have a Davidic king anymore. There's no blessing. How can we bless all the peoples of the earth? What about the promises? Have we blown it through our unfaithfulness? It's as if the old covenant is testifying against itself. This doesn't work. This whole project has failed. But there's a prophetic hope. God doesn't forget his covenant. Jeremiah 29 verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, God says, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And this promise is fulfilled. In our last section, section 8, the return and the restoration. This all begins in 538 BC under Cyrus the Persian, who came to power as the Persian Empire took over from the Babylonians. Cyrus had a policy of relocation of people. And we have archaeological, we have something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which they found a documentary uh, record of this produced by the Persians at the time. Cyrus's policy was instead of having these people living and cluttering up my capital and my lands, I'm going to send the people and their gods back to their lands. I'm actually going to fund them to go back to their lands, as prophesied by Isaiah, generations before Cyrus was even born. And the people of Israel are caught up in this. We have three waves of returnees over a period of about 100 years. Phase one, Zerubbabel, goes back. We read about this in Ezra chapters 1 to 6. Uh, as the governor and the temple is completed, rebuilt in 515 BC. So the people are kind of back in the land, but it's all a bit disappointing. We find people looking at the temple thinking, it doesn't really seem as good as the old one. We don't really seem to be experiencing the blessing of God. Phase two of the return from exile is under Ezra, 80 years later. We read about this in Ezra chapter 7 to 10. And Ezra conducts spiritual reforms. He breaks off the kind of practice of intermarrying with the people of the land, reinstates the law, the concept of we live as God's covenant people, separate from the people around us. This is what we need to do. This is the lesson we learn from exile, that if we're going to live as God's people in God's land under God's blessing, we need to live his way. 
And phase three of the return from exile is identified with Nehemiah, unsurprisingly in the book of Nehemiah. About 10 years later, Nehemiah re-energizes Ezra's work, which has begun to flag and redefends Jerusalem as a secure city, reinstitutes the sacrifices. And so as the Old Testament kind of draws to an end, we have some people in the land, but many of them have stayed in Babylon and some are even in Egypt at this time. Some people in part of the land experiencing a small blessing. Their hearts haven't changed. It testifies against itself that this doesn't work. And there's a general mood of disappointment. People are asking, is this it? Is this the eternal kingdom? Where's the splendor? Where's the glory? Where's the blessing? Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 said, The glory of the present house, speaking of the new temple, will exceed the glory of the former house. I think the Israelites looking at it would be shrugging and saying, Really? How is this the whole world living under the blessing of God? How does this fulfill the promises made in things like Psalm 22? All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. How does this fulfill Isaiah 2, verse 2? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. How is this Isaiah 49 verse 6? It's too small a thing to restore Judah. How is this Isaiah 52? He'll sprinkle many nations. How is this Habakkuk 2 14? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How is this Zechariah 2 verse 11? Many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day. How is this Jeremiah 31 where God says he'll solve the problem of our sinful hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and I'll write my law in their hearts. So the Old Testament ends, and we have 400 years of silence, during which the people ask, has God forgotten us? Will he ever fulfill his promises? And then finally, without spoiling the story, because you know we get Jesus, the seed of the woman, the one offspring, the one seed of the woman born. We get Jesus, the one seed of Abraham, who all the promises condense him. And are going to be expanded to the nations. And we get Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the ruler whose scepter is going to be in his hand. And he'll rule the nations with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. We get the son of David, whose God's going to build a house for him, whose throne's going to endure forever. And who, although he never did wrong, was punished with the rods and afflictions of men. We get Jesus, the perfect Israel, who came up out of Egypt and lived under the covenant and pleased God in everything. We get Jesus, the last Adam who in contrast to all the other Adams that God has given us, never failed, never gave up, never disobeyed God, never broke fellowship with God. We get Jesus who changes the hearts of Jew and Gentile so that people want God. And we find the land extended so it bursts out of the confines given to the Abraham and fills the whole earth. And we find as Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, we get every spiritual blessing in Christ. We suddenly see that the whole Old Testament is building up to this point where that didn't work. But this will work. God will have a people who fill the whole world living under his blessing in Christ. Well, we hope you enjoyed what Rich had to say. And remember that full notes on all of the content of The Hangout plus a Q&A with Rich can be found at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 24.